Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to talk about Bosnia and the twin crises engulfing the country. A quarter century after its civil war, Bosnia's multi-ethnic state looks like it's in danger of unraveling. A US brokered deal brought an end to the Bosnian war among Bosnian Serbs, Croats and Bosniaks in 1995. But some of the ethnic divisions and tensions that sparked that three-year conflict have continued to simmer. The Republika Srpska will control its own affairs in a legal, constitutional manner including by having its own army, judiciary, fiscal administration, as well as intelligence and security agencies. We will re-establish all these institutions. The first of Bosnia's crises involves the Republika Srpska, an autonomous Serb-majority region established by the 1995 Dayton Accords that ended Bosnia's civil war. In mid-October, Serb leader Milorad Dodik threatened to withdraw the region from state institutions, including the National Army, and reassemble a Serb force. In essence, he appears to be laying the groundwork for Republika Srpska's succession or union with neighboring Serbia. The second crisis pits Bosniaks, Bosnian Muslims, against the country's Croats. They're at loggerheads about how to carry out long overdue reforms of the electoral system. Croats are threatening to boycott polls scheduled for next year. And for the first time since the end of the Bosnian War, people are asking if the country could be heading towards armed conflict. The new international representative there certainly thinks so. With Christian Schmidt warning, Bosnia faces its greatest existential threat of the post-war period. Fears reached a new level when Bosnian Serb leader Milorad Dodik said he would withdraw the Serb entity Republika Srpska from state institutions and work towards full autonomy. The two crises reinforce each other. Frustrated by the lack of electoral reform, the main Croat party has, in effect, entered into a tactical alliance with Dodik, echoing many of his complaints. It's hard to see how Bosniaks and Croats respond to the Serb challenge while they're feuding over elections. 
Bosnia has what's called a high representative. It's sort of an international overseer who has some power over local authorities. That's another legacy of Dayton. In his latest report to the UN Security Council, the current high representative, Kristen Schmidt, said that Bosnia faced its greatest existential threat of the post-war period. We're going to talk about this with Marco Prelitz, who's been working on Bosnia and the Balkans for many years, including for Crisis Group. Marco, welcome on. Hi, Richard. Hi, Nas. So, Marco, perhaps we could start, just give us a little bit of background to the Republika Srpska dispute. What provoked it? What are the underlying divisions? What is Dodik doing? Well, uh, it all really started this past summer when the outgoing high representative, a man by the name of uh, Valentin Insko from Austria, used his, his power to uh, impose legislation to pass a, a law criminalizing uh, denial of, of genocide and, uh, and a number of other uh, forms of uh, inflammatory speech. And this was the first time that, that the high representative had used his powers to, to pass a law in, in about 10 years. And the Serbs uh, reacted to that. They felt that it was directed uh, at them. They were the ones who were against that law prim- primarily. They reacted by saying, okay, we're, we're, we are going to start now uh, severing our connections with the, the rest of the country. Dodik has made no secret of his view that his entity should be independent. Okay, he wants independence. He's taken this, this opportunity to start actually putting into practice a, a, a wide range of steps that would, that would systematically cut the links tying his entity to the rest of the country. And although he says he wants independence, do you think that these are genuine steps toward that? Or is this something that he's sort of using to leverage for his own popularity or or for other concessions from Sarajevo? Yeah, well, let me say two things about that. I mean, there's the question of motives, which I'll get to in a second. Um, and then there's the question of where is he? Where is he going? I think the direction is crystal clear. They are headed toward independence uh, in fact, if not in law. They, so they're talking about, you know, basically winding the clock back to somewhere basically immediately after the end of the war, when there were essentially no uh, or very few common institutions connecting the Serbs with, with the rest of the country. He has described it as uh, sovereignty, uh, that what he wants is sovereignty within Bosnia-Herzegovina. But he's also said that he thinks the country will eventually fall apart and that, that RS will be independent. The, the independence part, the formal part, is something that I think he can, he's comfortable putting off uh, for several years, maybe many years. But they're definitely moving toward essentially being in full control of their, their own affairs and denying the Bosnian government any meaningful say on the territory of, of RS. The motive for it a lot of people believe that Dodik is concerned about his party's possibly declining popularity. And some people claim that he's also concerned with his own potential liability should he lose power. He's been the subject of a couple of criminal complaints that have gone nowhere over the years. In some ways, it doesn't really matter uh, what the motive is because the train has left the station, so to speak. The things he's doing involve a lot more people than just himself. So it's now being done within the assembly of, of Republika Srpska. And, you know, whether he's, he was sincere or whether it was just a tactical thing, you know, we could speculate about that. But ultimately, we have to respond in the same way in both situations. 
And Marco, just so listeners understand, could you just tell us uh, exactly what position Dodik holds? He's one of the three presidents of the whole of Bosnia, right? He's not the, the leader of the Republika Srpska per se. Yeah, so legally, he's now uh, one of the three members of the, the collective presidency, but he is also de facto the leader of the entity, insofar as he is the leader of the largest party in the entity. And the three-person presidency, this is another legacy of the Dayton Accords, whereby, in essence, the presidency shared among Croats, Serbs, and Bosniaks. Exactly, yeah, that's, it's provided for in the constitution that's part of the Dayton Peace Agreement. Marco, how much support does Dodik enjoy at this point from the population in Republika Srpska? Well, it's it's mixed. On some issues, there's very, very solid support. So uh, after the high representative uh, imposed the law, pretty much all of the significant Serb parties in the RS assembly agreed that they were going to uh, boycott the, the state level. Okay, so they were not going to have any interactions with, with the, the Sarajevo government until essentially that imposition was lifted. So on issues like that, there is rock solid support you know, across the board. On issues of whether or not to go for independence and on how fast to pull away, there the situation is a lot more murky and there's a substantial opposition, maybe like around 30, 40% uh, of the, the people in the, um, the parliament, maybe up at sometimes close to 50% that is uncomfortable with how fast Dodik is taking this. And certainly uh, anything having to do with, you know, his his narrow party interest uh, and his political career is something that's only interesting for, for his party. So, Marco, let's talk then a little bit about the support that Dodik enjoys from uh, outside uh, the country. So there's Serbia itself. I mean, Belgrade has traditionally been very supportive of Bosnian Serbs, of Republika Srpska. And then there's Russia, which you mentioned. Moscow usually quick to sort of throw its weight behind the Serbs, behind Dodik. Yeah, how much have, have Serbia and Russia this time been prepared to get involved? The situation with, with Serbia proper is is interesting. The um, the governments of Serbia and of Republika Srpska have substantially the same policy, but there's a big, big difference in style. So whereas Dodik and the Republika Srpska government go for full confrontation and they've basically written off any support that they might enjoy uh, within the European Union uh, or in Washington. Serbia and its president, uh, Aleksandr Vucic, are very, very concerned not to burn uh, their bridges with with the EU. So they are very, very careful. And Serbia uh, is also a signatory to the Dayton uh, peace agreement, and they uh, will not approve anything that openly violates it. So they they do not say that they uh, would countenance a formal secession by the Bosnian Serbs. In fact, they say we support the, the Serbian people in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and we support the sovereignty of Republika Srpska within uh, the territorial integrity of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Russia is much more uh, open in its support for uh, for the Bosnian Serbs, and to some extent, uh, I think they they probably see this as another case in which they can uh, thwart the designs of the West uh, and their, their rivals in, in the EU and the US at very low cost uh, to themselves. It doesn't cost them anything at all just to threaten a veto in the Security Council uh, or to provide you know, diplomatic support to, uh, to Dodik. How much further they're willing to go, that's an open question. 
Um, they have not said that they're willing to recognize um, a breakaway. They have also not said that they would not recognize uh, a breakaway. So that is that's something that I think they're leaving ambiguous for the time being. So Russia's views on, on secession are sort of ambiguous, right? It was very opposed to another secession, uh, Kosovo's breakaway from Serbia and subsequent bid for independence. Does Moscow's opposition to Kosovo's succession weigh on its view on what Dodik is doing at all? I think it does, uh, although not necessarily in a, in a logically consistent way. Um, I think one thing that Russia has deeply resented is having its views overruled uh, at various stages in the Balkans. So uh, starting probably with the, the NATO bombing of Serbia in 1999 over Kosovo, then again over the, the independence of Kosovo in 2008. One Russian response has been to foster its own uh, breakaways uh, across, across Europe uh, and indeed to, to uh, take control of and, and annex Crimea out of Ukraine. So uh, one view is that uh, the reason Russia is um, fishing for influence in the Western Balkans is uh, that it would like to accumulate some chips that it can cash in later for Western recognition of things that are more important to it, like its claim to Crimea, for example. Um, not saying it would necessarily be that one, because this is still a, you know, it, this is a territory that is quite far from Russia proper and one in which they are nonetheless, you know, exerting a, a fair amount of diplomatic resource. So Marco, there's also a separate crisis going on between the Croats and the Bosniaks. Can you tell us a bit about what's going on in that context? Yeah, uh, this is another uh, tension now that's been going on for quite, for quite some time, for many, many years. And right now it takes the form of a dispute over elections. So the issues get very technical and very tangled. There's lots of different courts involved, but it basically comes down to the question of who can be elected to certain offices. So specifically the, the three member presidency and the upper house of the parliament uh, and who gets to elect. Okay, so in a sense, you know, uh, what are the electoral districts gonna be? Right now in the constitution, it's ethnically defined. So uh, the, the presidency has to have exactly one Serb, one Bosniak, and one Croat, and cannot have anyone else. So if you are from some ethnic minority, you are arguably uh, excluded from, from candidacy. Uh, on the other hand, it is open to any party to run uh, anyone they want. So, and what has happened uh, on two occasions, including in the last general elections, a predominantly Bosniak party has run a very popular uh, within the Bosnian community, uh, Croat uh, candidate, and uh, he won without any significant support within the Croat community. So Croat voters and the major Croat party felt that they were disenfranchised, that there's a person who is of, you know, so to speak, the right ethnicity, but they don't feel like he represents them. So the, the dispute is how to square that circle. Um, the problem there is also that the Croats are, are the smallest community. They're somewhere between 10 and 15% of the, of the overall population. So how you get from there to, you know, one out of the three spots is, is something that they have not been able to, to find a formula for. And this is gumming up the works in a, in a number of ways. So there are two entities. Uh, there's Republika Srpska, the smaller one, predominantly Serb, and the larger one, which is called the Federation, and it's shared by uh, mostly uh, by Bosniaks and Croats. That larger entity uh, has been blocked. Uh, they have not had a government in three years. Uh, 
because uh, the Croats have refused to uh, to go ahead and approve one. So they're still operating with their last government from 2014, I think. And there are ministries that are vacant because ministers have died in the meantime. The court is also, there have been judges who have died. So the court is not able to have a quorum. And maybe most importantly, while the Bosniaks and Croats are quarreling over this, they are unable to make common cause and come up with a response to deal with this challenge coming from the Serbs, which is threatening to break up the country. So, Marco, we'll go back in a moment to the Republika Srpska dispute, uh, risks of violence around that and, and sort of potential ways that that might be resolved. But before we do that, what, what's the fix to this standoff between Bosniaks and, and Croats? Well, there is a big push by the United States and the EU to get the, um, the Bosniak and Croat parties to agree on what is quite uh, a complicated set of measures Um they have to amend the constitution. Uh, so not just change the election law, but they actually have to go into the constitution and, and change it um, to deal with the presidency because it's, you know, the, um, the composition is specified therein. And even if they can agree, they will then have to get the Serbs to agree. Uh, and the Serbs are not agreeing to anything now, um, just as a matter of principle. The, the deadline that they've got is somewhere uh, in the late spring, probably. The elections are scheduled uh, and have to take place next October. And there is a, a consensus that the law cannot be changed at the, at the last minute, that that's improper. So while it would be ideal if the international mediators were able to get them to agree to a, a compromise in the next you know, five or six months, that seems to be pretty aspirational. What I think might be more realistic is for them to agree to some kind of gentleman's agreement that um, the Bosniak parties would essentially uh, promise for this next round not to run uh, popular candidates in the uh, for the Croat seats uh, and let the Croat parties um, elect those people among themselves, uh, arguably within the spirit of, of Dayton. And then, and you would need to have an international uh, sort of sponsorship for this have a, a sustained push to come up with a permanent solution afterward. And there's some precedent for that, for that right? To Bosniaks allowing Croats to elect their own president and representative. That has happened in most elections. Um, there have only been, uh, I think, two in which a, um, a candidate has won without the majority of the Croat vote. And it was the same candidate. So, Marco, what are the options on the table within Bosnia regarding the potential move towards RS succession? There is not a lot, to be honest. The fabric of the of the Dayton Agreement, really, it's, it is a very pure power-sharing agreement meant to end a war. And it essentially gives any of the three parties the ability to pull the emergency brake and bring everything to a halt. And there's very little recourse. Um, so I think people would say one thing that could be done would be to uh, empower the high representative to do what he did in the very early years after the war, which was to respond to what were then um, Serb and Croat attempts to, you know, to pull away. Just as a historical aside, there was a view, uh, you know, for about five or six years after after the war ended that Bosnia was just going to fall apart soon, okay? Uh, and it was really quite a, a, a huge project to to keep it together, and that was successful. Um, 
so one option that people are looking at within Bosnia um, in Sarajevo is to to re-empower the high representative. Um, that would be difficult. The early high representatives had, you know, upwards of 50,000 international troops on the ground to call on. The number now is, I think, 600. So the Serbs could just say, as they have said, you know, no, <laughs> you are taking decisions to remove us. We're just going to ignore you. A lot of it depends on how determined the Serbs are to pursue their own way, uh, how determined they are for independence. If they're not open to any kind of negotiation that would keep Bosnia together, uh, and there is a real possibility that, that they're not, or at least that Dodik is not, then I think we are in a very serious situation because a, an actual disintegration might not be peaceful at all. But there's also, I think, some grounds for hope that what Dodik wants is really something short of independence, maybe uh, just more autonomy or a firmer guarantee of autonomy or getting rid of international supervision uh, or, you know, any one of a number of other things. And what we need is to have a, a negotiating framework that would explore whether there is, in fact, some common ground. And, and are there steps, uh, a sort of short-term compromise that could pave the way to that negotiating framework? I mean, in, in the past, high representatives have sometimes, from what I understand, reversed decisions in the face of Serb opposition. Could that happen with former representative Insko's genocide law, for example, that, that triggered this latest escalation? Maybe that happens and then Dodik puts on hold his moves to withdraw Republika Srpska from state institutions? Yeah, in 2007, something like this uh, happened. The Serbs began boycotting the government in protest over a law imposed by the high rep of that time, which they didn't like. And that law imposed by the, the high rep was meant to be just the opening salvo in a number of other measures that he was going to take in order to um, crack down on what, what he perceived to be Serb uh, intransigence. And uh, unfortunately, it turned out that there was just not the international support for such um, an intrusive use of, of his powers, and he was forced to, to back down. And instead of formally rescinding the measures that he'd imposed, he, he simply issued another decision saying that his previous measure did not mean what it seemed to mean. It was, it was called an authorized interpretation. So it, it, in, in effect, it walked back the, the law that the Serbs were protesting. So there is a precedent for that kind of thing. It is, of course, embarrassing, but we're now in a, in a fairly deep crisis. And I think we need to look at all of the possibilities that are available in order to, to get us out of the situation in which we're in. Could I just ask a follow-up there? I'm wondering how much is there serious resistance to the role of the Office of the High Representative itself? Or is there a sense that that role remains crucial for maintaining uh, political balance? You get all kinds of answers depending on who you ask. So within Bosnia, there is pretty overwhelming support uh, in the Bosnia community. And among those that are oriented to, toward a, a civic conception of, of the state among people that have a more ethnic orientation. So people that are more interested in, in um, Serb or Croat uh, autonomy, uh, they're, they're quite hostile to the high representative. Uh, in the international community, uh, the U.S. has been quite supportive. Europe uh, was um, quite opposed 
for a number of years, although it has now, I think, grudgingly come around to the idea that they need to keep the office for some time. And Russia and China are, uh, are again, opposed. And so, Marco, you talked about the sort of potential for violence if Republika Srpska, if Dodik keeps you know, moving in the direction he's moving. What, what might that look like? Where do you see the main risks emanating from? Um, at some point, you're going to begin to get a contest between you know, who gets to use force where. So they've already begun to talk about that. There are uh, Bosnian, um, essentially, police investigators who are uh, empowered to investigate violations of um, national law, including this new genocide denial law. And the Serbs have said that they would not allow them to pursue investigations on their territory. So that would be one potential case in which you could have police confronting other police. Another thing that's maybe more serious is the um, the Serbs have said that they would set up their own border police. Okay, there is already a Bosnian border police that will continue going to work. Um, so that is another case in which you could have uh, a confrontation taking place. There are places where the dividing line between the two entities is very tense. Uh, and one of these is right around Sarajevo. At the end of the war, the Serbs were in control of the hills around Sarajevo, and that is still their territory. And there is, you know, because of the, the, the brutal siege that Serbs inflicted on, on that city and the vast number of people uh, that, were, that were killed, there might not be a willingness to tolerate any kind of armed Serb presence up there. What I think is not likely is anything resembling the, the last war that was as horrible as it was because Bosnia was such an ethnically mixed country. And a lot of what is now RS had a, a substantial uh, Bosniak majority at the time. And those people were ethnically cleansed. They were, they were persecuted, they were murdered, they were driven out of their homes. Some of them have gone back, but not that many. So what you now have is, is mostly quite homogenous territories. So there's just not the, the kind of situation on the ground that would make you fear a, a massive conflagration like there was between 92 and 95. But you might have still some fighting and you might have a failed state in the midst of that. And in this context, what possible avenues are there for international actors who are obviously already so involved to try to change Dodik's incentives? Well, there's, uh, there's a number of things that are, that are on the table uh, in terms of carrots and sticks. So uh, there are sanctions. Uh, Dodik is already, since 2017, under United States uh, sanctions. Those could be broadened, and there has been some rumbling out of Washington that has suggested that they, that they would be broadened to cover companies and other individuals. Uh, the European Union could also impose its own sanctions, although that is a more uh, difficult process because you need uh, agreement among the, the 27 member states. It's unclear how uh, successful that would that would be. Uh, I don't see that there is the kind of appetite for the kinds of sanctions that were imposed on Yugoslavia during the war uh, that really, you know, that produced the hyperinflation, really brought it to its economic knees. Inflicting that kind of pain, I don't think anyone's thinking about that. What you could threaten is essentially isolation, that if RS breaks away, uh, then uh, we will simply uh, not have any contact with anyone representing that entity. The state of Croatia could have an important role to play here because they are uh, the neighbor for the larger and wealthier half of Republika Srpska. 
Uh, and in fact, if you're going from the de facto capital of Republika Srpska, Banja Luka, if you're going from there to Belgrade, you go through Croatia. You just hop across the border, you get on the highway, and you're there quite quickly. If you try to go through Bosnia, you're going on very small country roads. It takes a very, very long time. Croatia could close that border. That That is a that is a serious threat that could be put on the on the table, but it is one that they're only likely to uh, to consider if they feel that uh, the Bosnian Croats are getting a fair shake. Marco, the, the fixes that we've talked about both for the Croat-Bosniak uh, dispute and for this, the sort of bigger dispute between uh, the Republic of Skepska and the, and the central government, I mean, these are short-term fixes to get through the elections and then sort of with the promise of more fundamental reforms sort of on the table. But people have been talking for a long time. I mean, I, I remember you and I talked about this sort of years ago, the importance of constitutional reform in Bosnia and revisiting some of the, the stuff that was decided in Dayton. Why do we think that's that's more likely to happen now than it was five years ago, a decade ago? Yeah, that, that is also a really good question. And it's one that I ask myself um, from time to time. I, I think the best answer I can give is that the alternatives are dropping uh, or, or dying out. Okay. And I am coming around to the view that Dayton is reaching um, the, the end of the road, that we cannot really go much further for Bosnia within the framework established at the, in the Dayton Peace Agreement. And on at least one level, there is fairly broad agreement on that point. Nobody, I think, seriously anticipates that Bosnia will be able to join the European Union with the kind of constitution that it has now. And nobody really likes that constitution. So there is a constituency for, for finding something else. The problem has been that while everyone dislikes Dayton, they all dislike different features of it. And they want to move in different and incompatible directions. So, and that's why it's been so hard to come up with a with an alternative. But there's always been in the past, there's always been the sense that, you know, we can just muddle through, you know, we can just continue, uh, go on for another few years, uh, maybe quite a number of years with, with business as usual. That has become more difficult. And I think now, Really, if anything, it is the absence of plausible alternatives that might energize the search for a, a, a more sustainable constitutional foundation for Bosnia-Herzegovina. And so if you were to sort of reflect back on the, the years since the Dayton Accords, with a quarter century of hindsight, the political system that was set up by Dayton and the Bosnian constitution sort of very much based on ethnic representation, positions divvied up in essence among the three main ethnicities. We talked about the presidency, but it's the same applies to, to other institutions, with also ethnic vetoes, meaning that one community, provided they're reasonably well organized, can block laws, block measures that they, they don't like. And this cemented, in a way, ethnicity as the main dividing line in politics, the main form of identification in politics, but it also frequently led to, to this gridlock. So you think of the clear flaws of that system. And yet, if you think back to the, the war and, and what things looked like in 95, you could make a strong case that that sort of compromise, those sort of security guarantees among the three communities in Bosnia were necessary to bring the war to a close. I don't know how you would sort of see that tension today, the sort of seeds of future problems that was sown within that compromise. I'd say a couple of things. I mean, there's... It's easy to criticize now the Dayton Agreement and generally the policy framework it took place in to the decision to end the war uh, when when it happened. Um, things back then, you know, looked very different. 
Okay, this was happening, you know, in real time, so to speak. And I think it, it now, it, it just, it, it is what it is. It is true that ethnicity is just baked into the, the Dayton Agreement. It's, it's all through the, the text of it. And it does make it very, very easy for people to block progress when they're, when they're not happy. Um, or when they're trying to, you know, extract some concession. The thing that it's important to keep in mind is that ethnicity is also just a social reality in Bosnia-Herzegovina. It is, you know, still today, in some senses, a divided society. And people, you know, of different ethnic backgrounds can and do uh, get along very well. But also, there is a, a fear on the part of quite a lot of people in every group against being governed by representatives of the other. And you can see it in every group because every group is a, is a minority somewhere. You know, even the, the Bosniaks who are, you know, a majority in, in the country as a whole, they're a minority in Republika Srpska and they're very aware of how they're treated when, when they're a minority. I, I think in terms of the future, there's, there's no doubt, at least in my mind, that we need to move beyond ethnicity as a legal concept and toward a, a more normal, for lack of a, of a better word, federalist model in which you have you know, power devolved down uh, to, to lower levels, which are territorially defined. I think that's in the long term, the direction that Bosnia will have to go in. There's no real need to reinvent the wheel. I mean, there's a lot of countries that have some degree of ethnic diversity within Europe, and they all basically pick various variants of federalism and local autonomy. There's no reason why Bosnia should be the one that cannot figure out how to do that. Um, but I think today we're in a, in a very acute crisis where it's not even clear that the country's gonna survive. And I think what we need to do is you know, get it out of the intensive care unit and then do some physical therapy and, and get it back on its feet. Marco, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work, including on Bosnia and the Balkans, on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producer, Sam Mednick, and also to Finn Johnson. And thanks, as ever, to all our listeners. Please do leave us a question or comment. If you like the show, give us a positive rating or review. We'll hope you'll all join us again next week. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Confidence starts with loving who you are. 
And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.